Welcome to Beyond This Point. I'm Gabriel Stromberg, Creative Director of Civilization. So, what is the point of Beyond This Point? The inspiration for this podcast really came about through our studio, being so inspired by those around us who we work, collaborate, and engage with. Artists, business owners, designers, and leaders of all types. We recognize the value in having access to these distinct perspectives and wanted to create a conversation that puts a spotlight on different ways of seeing, thinking, and making. Every day, we are bombarded with signs, symbols, words, and images, directing us, selling to us, distracting us, catching our eye, sending information to our brains. The realm of graphic design exists at a visual frequency that is so constant and ubiquitous that we often cease to be aware of it. Look anywhere, the tag in your shirt, the side of your shoe, the cover of your magazine, the interface of your phone, and you will find graphic design doing its job. Every so often, a person produces work within this realm that does everything it's supposed to, yet through their skill, their vision, their distinct approach, they create an impact that rises above the visual hum. When this happens, it is notable. If a designer is able to do this repeatedly, we recognize that they are working at a level that is rare and extraordinary. And when a designer is able to construct an entire career out of again and again creating work at such a level, that designer becomes legendary. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with not one, but two such people, truly legendary designers. My first guest, Paula Scher, was described by Ellen Lupton as one of the best designers of her generation. Whether it's album covers, environmental graphics, or branding and identity, Paula's work has been, since her start as an art director for CBS, through her position as principal for the seminal design firm Pentagram, continually celebrated and recognized as not just exceptional, but influential and historically important. Paula has received numerous awards and accolades, including the Chrysler Award for Innovation in 2000, and she was awarded an AIGA medal in 2001, the celebrated graphic design organization's highest honor. My second guest, April Griman, was described by Massimo Vignelli as the most daring and meaningful experimental graphic designer in the world. From her infamous cover for Design Quarterly to the radiant large-scale mural titled Hand Holding a Bowl of Rice, which is permanently on display at the Wilshire, Vermont subway terminal in Los Angeles, April's work continually pushes boundaries of aesthetic, technology, tradition. April has also received numerous awards and accolades, including the Chrysler Award for Innovation and an AIG medal, both in 1998. In addition to being both artists and designers, both of my guests are educators as well. April teaches at Woodbury University School of Architecture in Burbank, and Paula teaches at the School of Visual Arts in New York. The day before Paula was to give a talk for our design lecture series, we sat her down with April Griman at Cornish College of the Arts for a discussion on the art of design. And now, let's go beyond this point. So in addition to being practicing designers, you also both work in the field of art. You both exhibit and show in museums and galleries. Could you both kind of talk about any shows that have been recent or that you have coming up? Paula, do you want to start? Uh, I'm, I've been painting uh, large-scale maps for uh, about 18 years, and I exhibit them uh, at every two or three years. So I'm having a show this year on February 18th at Bryce Walkowitz Gallery, who's my, my gallery, and um, the show is only paintings of the United States because it's an election year. Excellent. Very timely. I have everything, everything you ever want to know about the United States is in the show, and it's all useless <laughs> information. You can come and enjoy it. I hope you'll be able to see it. You think it'll be influential in this election year? No, absolutely not. That useless information? <laughs> 
a lot of no, actually I learned I learned a lot about the US painting it um, because you you find connections and you see localities and when you know how people think and what the demographic is it becomes very fascinating it's nice to, it's nice to know that stuff if you ever have the time in April I don't have any um, upcoming shows and currently I'm not represented by a gallery but um, I have a humongous printer in my office and uh, uh, we are amassing a couple bodies of work photographic work and um, yeah, I'm just enjoying making this stuff. I have no outlet for it currently. So uh, recently I attended uh, a really amazing exhibition at the Bellevue Arts Museum. It was a show called uh, New Frontier, and it was uh, a survey of Northwest designers and makers um, co-curated by Charlie Shuck and uh, Jennifer Milliken, who actually was my, was my tour during this, uh, during this show. And uh, when we were kind of looking at the different pieces, she came to a piece, and um, she kind of mentioned that, because this was a show of design, of uh, product design and, and furniture and, and, and makers, and she kind of commented that one of the pieces kind of was steering more towards art as opposed to design. And, and so I asked her, I said, what is that criteria? What is that component that makes something art or design? Her response to that was utility, which was very appropriate in this context. Now, I know that this is not a dialogue that's necessarily new, uh, but I do think that this is something that's becoming more relevant. And so I want to ask both of you, uh, what, what is the criteria for something, both of you being, being people who work within both worlds? Um, I know, April, you, uh, you identify as uh, a designer, but also as a transmedia artist. Mm -hmm. What is their criteria of something being defined as art or design? What is that thing that separates them? <laughs> In uh, Three words? Uh, no, um, as, as many words as you need. <laughs> let's, let, let's have Paula take that one. Uh, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's interesting because the, um, the, it always comes up. And fine art is somehow used as a value judgment. It's like, like if, you, if you say something is art, that you're, you're elevating it. It, 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 it. it is perceived as having greater status, which I always think is sort of bold. That... that I always look at it very, <clears throat> very much more of an economic difference because there are, there are ways the things are made that have different um, outcomes and that if you're designing, there is a utilitarian aspect to it because you're making something that actually has another use. And the purpose is, is uh, part of the project, the uh, limitations of size and scale, budgets, things like that. Those are things that are factors that may not be <clears throat> the same in, in fine art, but in fine art there are also other factors. There are other commercial factors like you, you know, there are galleries. Galleries have, uh, my, ga my gallerist told me I had to make my paintings smaller because people, people want to put them over their couches. You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not any different from, from <laughs> creating something for a client. I mean, they, there are there are essentially uh, different forms that different ways you behave, uh, different modus operandi, different people that matter in each industry, but they're not they're both equal tasks. It isn't that there is this fine art that's this higher value judgment. It's what what is the purpose of what you're doing and why are you doing it and what is the goal of it? Mm -hmm. If somebody makes a terrific object and the goal of it is to be useful and it fails, 
then you might say, well, it's a failure as an object, but it, it, in one capacity, and it may be a success in another, and that may be in, for aesthetic pleasure. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that it becomes fine art if it was designed as a couch. It just means that it's a couch that you're going to buy that's going to be more of an object than um, uh, a couch that you're buying pure to, purely to lie down on. That's not bad. They're, they just have different purposes. It's kind of funny, though. You have a book called Make It Bigger, and in the art world, they're saying make it smaller. Absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> what is with that? Um, it has to do with how people buy paintings. You, <laughs> no. And they need bigger couches, clearly. Right, absolutely. You know, so that, you know. In my limited perception of the area of fine art, even though I have friends that um, are, are artists, um, I've always kind of romanticized this, and I've always thought that um, being an artist, uh, you had more autonomy and freedom. Uh, whereas I think we can all agree working in the field of design that as designers we're all um, constantly responding, creating, and evolving to meet the demands of commerce, marketing, and business. It's a fact of our occupation as right. designers. Um, being in both of these worlds, how does your creative process differ when working in one or the other? I'd like to just build on something Paula said though, which is it's kind of this discussion about is it art, is it, is it design, and I I would say because of my education, like this is not a regular and, and a growing kind of topic in Asia or in Europe. It's really an American thing. You know, America wants to make, draw lines in space, no pun intended, between these. And I mean, my undergraduate education, I had three teachers from the Basel School of Design and I would say any of them, if you would see their drawings, you would clearly think that they were artists, fine artists. I mean, they could draw like nobody's business, just and paint. And then I went to graduate school after that undergraduate education in, uh, to Basel myself and did graduate work. And the Basel School, just like the Bauhaus, you know, they don't, their art schools and that education doesn't, if you're going to paint a paint the side of your house or paint your garage or if you're going to paint a piece of on a piece of canvas you still need to know the same things you still need to know your materials you still need to think about your substrates you still need to think about preservation of that um, and so that whole basis for an education really comes from being an artist and I would say that in design for me anything that I feel like hits goes beyond the intent of, of, or the purpose of being utilitarian and solving the problem for a client, making the deadline and making the budget. There's another thing which has to do with something that has your, is your personal agenda, that your heart's in, and you keep going on it until you feel like it's, you've answered all those questions that are in your head that are very much like an artist. You know, like, what if I made this bigger? What if I made, what if I changed the color? What if I composed it differently? What if I, and that's when you've already solved the, the immediate need of solving a problem for because, a client. Because that's your art. And that's your art. But, but art and, is, not, is not defined that way. Art is personal. Art is what you make. I mean, most of us become designers because we want to make stuff. Mm -hmm. That was the goal. So if you're making the thing, you're making the thing with your head and your heart. You're solving a problem on the one hand, and you're I think the goal is to raise the expectation of what that thing can be and that that's the art part. Mm -hmm. The art part is okay, you've satisfied, we can all lay out a, a magazine and make it look terrific, but if we 
reinvent the expectation about how you might think about it, then we've really done something. And that's the art part. <clears throat> but it's the process itself is still a different contract. There's a client, there's a situation, there are constraints, you're not doing it purely for yourself, and it has a purpose. And that, that's, that's, that's what makes it different from going in a room and making something that has no necessary need from society. Nobody's asking you to make it, and nobody essentially needs it. You're, you're expressing yourself purely in its own form. But if you're earning a living at it, then there's this other criteria about it that you're going to have to deal with that's not so different, really, anyway. Paula, you um, touched on something briefly a moment ago. You mentioned that art and design, there are different value systems involved. Mm -hmm. Which value system is more sustainable, more accessible, and which value system is more relevant? They do today. They do different things. I mean, I think that I think that the boundaries are getting all blurred anyway. I mean, I know fine artists who really respect and admire design and want to make communication uh, pieces themselves, and and don't don't feel that it's fair and right that they can't to a degree. Mm -hmm. You know that that you find the. Um, uh, also, the tools. I mean, there's such a hybridization of you know, what we're using, everybody. I, I know so many fine artists who are, you know, using computer and, you know, using the tools that designers are using and have been using a lot longer <laughs> than the art community or video. You know, it's like all these, and there's just a lot of hybridization also in the expression and, uh, and the tools. Um, I mean, think of the artists that work with typography like Barbara Kruger or, or uh, Lawrence Weiner and, and, mm -hmm. and how much of that there is and how much those messages matter and what the overlay is. And if you look at Barbara Kruger's work, she works like that because she used to work at Condé Nast magazine mm -hmm. and did paste up some mechanicals. And the way she does her future extra bold italic was the typeface Mademoiselle magazine used to use. And she's laying her type out in the same strips <clears throat> that her boss Alexander Lieberman used to push around when he was changing her layouts. So there you have it, They've a, a total hybrid. I think it's interesting that you Don't mentioned- Don't forget Avenir then. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you mentioned Barbara Kruger. Um, art has this long-standing association with activism and protest mm -hmm. being utilized by Barbara Kruger and others, um, everyone from uh, Judy Chicago, Karen Finley, the Gorilla Girls, Grand Fury. Um, graphic I, designers. I could go on mm -hmm. and on. Um, and they they utilized um, and but I do think that the work that we're talking about is in the realm of fine art and they um, they utilize this to shape culture, mm -hmm. initiate dialogue, and ultimately to create change, often taking on serious issues like women's rights or HIV and AIDS awareness. So now we have new challenges to face: climate change, economic equality, gun violence. I mean, I could go on and on. And with the new tools we have, the internet, social media, all of which require interfacing with design. What opportunities do designers specifically have to address these kinds of issues? I think one thing we didn't talk about that's pretty strong for me in terms of the, particularly the public art work I've done, is that, um, and coincidentally, a lot of fine artists maybe aren't as good at it, but context. And I feel like with public art, you know, there's a committee or there's an art commission for a city, and they they, they, you know, put together a, a list of finalists and then they choose an artist. And then, so they might just, like, might be a great complex and then the, the artist that they like is a sculptor. So they just 
hire this guy, they commission this guy, sorry, different word, and he plunks a sculpture, and it has nothing to do with, it's, and it's painful to see this, because you see public art that you're like, what the hell is that? Mm -hmm. You know, like it's just so, has nothing to do with this, you know? Um, and I think that that's really important that, um, in, in the fine art, for me, is that, um, you know, and my design skills make it even sometimes more successful because I, I know about budget and I know about a schedule. But I'm, I'm always thinking about, you know, on the works I've done, like, what, what does this have to do with the environment it's going in? Because it's always... It's interesting that you're talking about this because in New York City, I'm on the design commission and I, I actually had to make judgments about the, the sorts of uh, public works that were made and the um, the way it would work in New York, the politics of it was that the um, DCA, which was arts and culture, had the, had the group, the committee that made the recommendation of the artists and they would, they would recommend exactly what you were talking about, mm -hmm. like a sculpture that would have nothing to do with it. And we would fight that because because in fact public art is actually more akin to design in that there is a, there is a context and a place <laughs> and a public, mm -hmm. and, a, and a way one views it, and a pure fine artist is often the worst person to do that because their, their view is not looking at this other situ mm -hmm. situation contextually, mm -hmm. and that's a huge problem. It actually is um, uh, something that, that cities grapple with all the time when they buy that stuff. It's fascinating how that, that intersects in a bad way. And that's something that typically designers do just innately, uh, take into account location and context. Right. That's right. Um, Not all fine artists are bad at this. Some are terrific at it too. But, it, but it, it's, there's a few good fine artists, but, by the way. No, who are, just, who are just who are no who are naturally good at understanding yeah. space. Right. Well, do you think the our relationship to things like context and and history are changing, considering the way that we now kind of encounter imagery through Pinterest, through social media? We often see things um, as just an image without context, without history. Um, I have a story that actually might get me in trouble. <laughs> Oh, good. I, I recently met someone who I follow on Instagram, an, an artist in his 20s, <laughs> and I told him, I really like all of the Solowit pieces you've been posting, to which he replied, who's Solowit? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and often uh, the way that we see things now is we don't even know who did them, and we'll see art you know, mm. alongside design. How is this changing the way artists and designers are engaging with art and design, how they're building their visual vocabularies? Well, I... I I don't think it's new that somebody who is just beginning to discover visual information mixes it all up. I know I did when I was young. You know, I, you know, I didn't get to see it on Instagram and I didn't get to see it on millions of websites. I had to you know, find it in antique stores and books. But a lot of my early career was the mashup of that. Mm -hmm. And that we are always a mashup of what we see and how we how we pull it together, and then we get, we have the rest of our lives to become educated about it. You know, it really depends upon the age of the viewer. What I think is spectacular, and what I see about my students is their um, their ability to see form and their ability to put images together in a way that I find amazingly sophisticated at a much earlier period of time for them. Um, largely because they see so much more, so they can absorb that much more. And they're fantastic typographers. Hmm. Do you think that their understanding of typography has anything to do with, this is kind of a theory of mine, texting? The fact that now we communicate through type 
so commonly? I think it's all of it. I mean, I think it's texting. I think it's everything on the computer. I think it's every sign they see outside. I think it's everywhere they look. It's what they absorb. I mean, and and it's also the notion of um, the uh, telegraphing of it. I mean, texting in terms of a short form is right, and in, in, in terms of your comment. But I think it's 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 all of that at once, and that we moved. If you if you talk about the way I see almost all my clients, all my students, the way the world perceives and understands things is from a visual vantage point where I would say 20 years ago it was a, a word-based vantage point, like, the, like taglines on ads as ways of understanding something as opposed to um, logo, icon. That's where the whole, the whole world has shifted that way, where we can talk in one language visually. I mean, and, and we, as, a, as it gets shorter and more abbreviated, it becomes completely global. It's astounding. It's very exciting, I think. So your point is that you are a little anxious about this? Well, um, What's your fear here? I, I have a feeling that... Um, Spit it out. Uh, well, during, during my education as a graphic designer, I, was, I, was, I constantly had teachers who grew up in, an, in another era who would say things like, oh, in my day, we had to do paste up, and we had to set type by hand. And so now that you have... Uh, now that you work through kind of you know digital formats you'll never have that type of education and then my response was always yeah but now I can look at type on a daily basis like a hundred times its size and I'm constantly like going into these details like you never could doesn't that have any sort of relevance or significance you know every time a new technology pencils a technology by the way so you know uh, camera you know people got freaked out about, you know, having a camera and documenting that way in terms of, you know, like now drawing's not good or painting's not good because we have this camera and then video came and, and then people said, you know, now people aren't going to go and then video players and so there's always been a freak out about, you know, the new technology coming and for me, you know, when I first started uh, embracing technology, it was out of total terror and fear uh, that not not understanding what that tool is about and then seeing what you could do with it and then worrying that how easy it was to kind of knock off something with those tools because they're so easy but I just I just decided to just you know just find it very beautiful and I just, just it you know what rises to the to be important has to do with like you said relevance and and the the art of it and so there's going to be there's so much crap, but there's more crap that was done with a pencil, I <laughs> promise you, you know, or charcoal, also, seriously. Also, also so. there, were very, there, were bad, there were bad periods. For example, if you <laughs> take, if you take uh, the period, if you talk about typography, and you take the period of the phototypositor, it's probably the worst Ooh. period of typography because it was blowing up letter forms arbitrarily where hand-drawn type that was, that was hand-set and hand-drawn where the, the fonts were crafted so yeah. they were corrected for each point size. Mm -hmm. with, uh, with a typositor, you were just blowing the thing up and blowing it down. That was what, what period? It was like 70s, I think, typositor. Yep. Terrible. Just because it was the newest form of technology mm -hmm. didn't make it good. Early desktop publishing was bad. I mean, it was, that was that was the computer couldn't do much. You couldn't put anything on its side. You hey, move hey, it hey! <laughs> Not what you did, my dear. 
You need no, magic. I'm talking about the ordinary person with the technology, not the mm -hmm. artist at manipulating. And I'm sure there were there was terrific things done with phototypositor too. But I'm in the I general. I think so. <laughs> That's the one thing. It was awful. That was awful. No, it was awful. Well, I just think it's interesting um, that you had just said that your students, um, one of the notable things about them is that they're so advanced in typography. Astounding. And, and, and I grew up in, mm -hmm. a, in a time where, you know, uh, teachers I were constantly say saying same. that you'll never learn typography because, you know, not handy-setting type and, you know, working with the computer. And I just wonder if there was a point in There's history where there was a teacher thoughts. that told a student, um, uh, uh, oh, in my day, you know, we had to chisel type. You'll never, you'll never be a great <laughs> typographer. Wow. Um, so going back to uh, the... I mean, my students are creating complete fonts. I didn't do that when I was in school. I don't have the facility to do it now. I mean, I look at them and I marvel at that capability. They see it so purely and they, they have control and they can design for uh, spirit and emotion. It's, it's, I think it's jaw-dropping. It's mm -hmm. a great time. So do you see this... Um kind of lack of connection to uh, context and history as maybe a sort of freedom? I don't think it's, it's I, I, I think that I think there is, simplified. A, uh, yeah, <laughs> Quite I, think, a bit. I, I think that, you know, when you're, when you start out, you don't know anything and you're like, you know, you're like a sponge. You sort of see a bunch of stuff and you soak it up and you don't know where it comes from and you don't, you don't have the history in order yet and you mess around with it and you're, you're inspired by it but you don't really know what it is and some older person comes and says, don't you know, young man, that was from this and you, you didn't have to go through those days so you really don't know what you're doing. And you can go through all of that and that's part of life. But as you, as you grow and you, you take these things that you've absorbed and you learned when you're interested, you figure out what they are. And I'm sure the person that didn't know who Saul LeWitt is is going to find out and begin to discover everything he did and, and begin to build on that because that's what you do. I remember when I first saw, I didn't learn about Russian constructivism when I was in college and I remember when I first saw it and I didn't know who these people were and it absolutely knocked my socks off. And I, didn't, I, I did things that you're not supposed to do with it and I did it out of my ignorance. But that ignorance is also great for making visual breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. I mean, that you don't, you don't want to make that go away totally. That's part of the charm of the, all that. And then there's a mess you make with it, too. That's part, we have to put up with that. So are you saying that, in a way, this lack of context and history might give you a sense of freedom and instigate creativity or I a new so. way of looking? I think so. I think, I think it helps you see in a different way. Yeah, you come it's true. It. You have to start somewhere, you know, and so you usually emulate or you see something. You may not even be conscious of, you know, what you've seen that you're drawing from, but, um, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think people that, I think you have to find a passion somewhere. You know, some people it's typography, some people it's image making. Um, I think uh, if you have a lot of exposure, if you're in a big city like New York, then I could see why typography would be so good because the exposure to words and ideas and thoughts and all that, it's a, it's a thinking capital of US, you know? Um, which then, of course, relates to, to, it's a business capital of the US too. So all of those kind of go hand in hand. But I mean, I, for me, like um, I went to Switzerland as a graduate because we didn't have, uh, any type shop as undergrads. And we were using Letraset, rub down letters, you know, 
which I was terrible at. You know, I was good in photography. I could was pretty precise, but made a pinhole camera. You know, all that was, you know, dialed in. But the by the way, I'm continually searching for Letra set on eBay these days. Oh God! <laughs> if you you won't be able to rub it down because it won't separate from the background anymore. By the way, you're going to have to tape it but with you get, its but backing. You, because of that, you get texture. That's true. <laughs> but um, I mean, for me, like what it was not only that I wanted that skill um, and that discipline of you know I mean I know how to handset type and I know how to use a proving press so. That was great, and I liked the physicality of that because um, I was really nervous about um, about lacking that hand-eye coordination. And and I think typography at its best is like drawing. You know, it's a composition. It has to do with figure ground. It has to do with negative space. It has to do with the crafting of of the letter forms and then the forms, individual forms, forming words. But for me, I was also really interested in words. And so typography was a really important thing for me because it, and I actually think I was more interested in the words and doing typography as an artist because there were things I read and things that I thought it would be great to express that typographically. And so it became very much of a, a plastic medium really to as expression. And I think that it exploded a lot because of the Basel School, for sure, Weingart. Um, but I think it's it's become you know type has become image, and that's because of the technologies that came in the eighties. Um, and uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but the Xerox machine. A yeah, great, that too. A great piece of technology. Yep, that's true. Well, and uh, going those dot screens, which were Letra said, you know, you could get those crazy things. Going back to the idea of, of art, which you just said was really important to you f for being experimental. For being expressive. Well, art from. I mean, I never thought about experimenting. I was just always interested in finding ways to express ideas. <laughs> well, I mean, again, back to the idea that design is always um, it's always tied to um, a vocation, a job. Um, well, if you wait, if if you if you open the dictionary mm -hmm. and you look up the word design in Webster, one A says a plan, and mm -hmm. that what design is is it's the art the art of planning. The different, that's different from, from making something where you don't quite know where it's going. Um, and they are very different acts. You know, that, that one is, there's a, there is an expected outcome, not, not expected in terms of necessarily what it looks like or what the level of it is or whether or not you raise an expectation or you don't, but this thing that you're accomplishing, there's a goal there. So there's strategy involved in it. There's a, there, there are lots of other, um, factors that make it a different occupation, and I don't mean occupation by earning a living, but a moment in time when you're investing yourself where it's different because the outcome has to be different. I would say that that um, design has to answer a question and art asks one, you know, that they're, they're different in that way. But there's not a value to judgment attached to it. There's fantastic design and crap art, and there's there's crap design and great art, and you know they 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 both live in the world, and they're not they they shouldn't be weighed against each yeah, other no. in that in that capacity. That's so for both of you, art has been a space where you can be more open-ended, less resolved, more experimental, but that in turn informs your design practice. Sure, absolutely, it balances it too. In other words, the, I like I like making my paintings because. 
it is there part of it is is, is the what what I'm doing with it but it's very zen like for me it's very meditative it's isolating it's slow um, when I'm designing it's, it involves a lot of people it's fast it's got deadlines I mean they're very opposite acts it's great because otherwise you've become unhinged when I look at your um, your map paintings uh, I think of many things but one of them is timeline and I think for me, that's uh, one of the things that separates them from design is, uh, you know, design we're constantly dealing with timelines, and those map paintings seem to defy that whole concept. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that? Well, talk to me about it now when I have a show and I can't finish the <laughs> damn painting because it takes too long. I mean, and, it's like really like, oh, God, i got to do two feet this weekend. And, and, they're, an, and, they're, an, like and they're enormous. There's a reason to make things smaller. <laughs> really small. I, I'm, I'm sorry to make more small ones. I'm just curious, and I'm, and I'm very aware that, like, in a way, I don't want Tiny. to um, break the mystery and magic of these paintings, but I have to ask, how, how long does one of those take you? Oh, four to six months. What size? Uh, they're about, uh, they average about something like eight by ten feet. There have been, the That's biggest one, I think, is, you know, maybe 14 feet wide. They're, they're, uh, and I, I've started, I, I'll, I'll show them tomorrow. I have, um, I've been doing them as installation where, I paint them and then they get repainted and they become environments, which I, I really like. Um, which, which, but I really like it because somebody else does it. <laughs> How do they design. do that? What? How do they do that? Um, I had done, uh, I actually was, I, I got a, a commission from the city of New York to do uh, a mural in a um, public school. Uh, it was an atrium. That were, there were two atriums that were 2,400 square feet. and. There were, it was one of those things where there was competition and they had called three artists and one of them Barbara Kruger. You like to do a thing. And I won it because I didn't solve it as a painter, I solved it as an environmental yeah. designer. You know, which was exactly what you were talking about before because I could actually go in and design the space. Um, and that's, that's what made it. That's what made it great. So anyway, what, what, I, what I did is I So Barbara pa Kruger's painting it for you? <laughs> no, no. I, I, what I did is I hired a sign painter. I did mm -hmm. a painting that was, I don't know, about you know, five by six feet. And we um, cut it up into a model of the space. So it went around. It had to go under a catwalk and around a ceiling. And we broke it up into panels that were about four by eight feet. And then I hired a sign, a sign painter who projected the painting onto the panels, and we mixed the, the colors, and he repainted my painting at this really enormous scale, and then it was tiled. It was, you know, and, and the thing had to be, because New York City owns it, it had to be fireproof, and it had to do all kinds of things where you could remove it. So it screwed into the wall and laid in like a series of tiles. Why, could, why did you have to remove it? It has to be removable in the event that there's a fire and they want to get it out there, because it's city government property. You know, if it's if it's a if it's a commission from oh. the city of New York, they have to own it. So you have to. Oh, there there are like uh, you know, cri this is a design project because mm -hmm. there's criteria. Like you have to figure out. That's why the act of actually doing a commission is so much different from doing fine art in your bedroom. You know, because because you're actually fulfilling some criteria of how the thing lasts, how it's mm -hmm. going to be stored, whether or not it's fire resistant, can somebody damage it. You know, all of that stuff has to be considered. So it's part of the process. That's called planning. That's design. Yeah, I—I I mean, I—I uh, I can one-up you. My mural is 8,200 square feet. Yeah, so that's twice your size. Is this? But is it this was made a, the same way, and it's on a building, and it should have been digitally printed. It's a video image. How do um, they do it? 
And the fire department said that we couldn't digitally print it because the only really reasonable material would be vinyl. And there is like a, you know, there's a code that says no vinyl because that's not art, that's design or that's commercial. So I had to hire sign painters to paint my video image. Can you imagine like a, you know, 16 million color video image? How do they do it? They do it, do they project it? Well, it turned out they did it by panel by panel. Like, the but they thing. actually got yeah. up and drew, did, did a drawing of it, which I had to approve on a cherry picker on a lift. And, um, and then they, um, because it was South and Western exposure, which is the worst thing you could have in terms of doing a painting that it would dry so fast. And it's a, it's a, it's an ellipse, a bowl. And so I had them do a test full size of the ellipse and they had so much problems doing a, you know, a eight, 80 foot ellipse <laughs> that they had to paint it in oil so it wouldn't dry too fast while they were painting it. And then the city required, so I almost decided not to go forward with the commission because I couldn't imagine painting a video image and, you know, 16 million color video image going down to what, 100 mm -hmm. colors of paint. But it turned out that the building, the two walls of this uh, seven story building, actually had stucco panels. So we could make that as a grid, and we, we, my art was only this big. It was just mm -hmm. a print of the video images, each, each wall. And then they, we actually, you know, did a plan. <laughs> and, you know, and then they just replicated that bit by bit, and then they had to still work it all at the end. But um, it was very successful, and it was ahead of schedule, and it was below budget, and the client actually gave me more money, <laughs> which is also never hurt, never. That's always know, good. Yeah, they, like, gave me another 25% increase on my fee, which was amazing. But, but the sad thing was um, this, the fire department then, or the city then, the building department required us to graffiti coat yeah. an oil yeah. painting. Right. So... It's actually ruined because the graffiti coating, which is clear, which had to be put over the oil when it dried, which wasn't really dry when they had to put the graffiti coating, has oxidized. And my mural is ruined. And they've mm -hmm. removed the graffiti coating and reapplied it, and it's done it again. Uh, and it's, it's a disaster in that way, all because they wouldn't let me print on our... Basically, you can get archival vinyl. You can use good inks. It could have been printed and installed in two and a half days and instead it took 28 days two guys on a lift and all this material and all this nonsense uh and it's it's ridiculous you know this uh, it's it's the art world's very funny <laughs> well, it's, it's funny when it cro when when art world crosses like building code yeah, like they're two. Those are two like not things that don't really line up. Two different planets. But what's interesting about about environmental graphics as a as a, a graphic design form is that of all the territories, I think that crosses over the most because that you're talking about public installation is really what you're talking about. And somehow, if it's typography, everybody's happy to let let a graphic designer do it, and then if it has an image in it, it's suddenly, oh, we gotta bring in a, we gotta bring in a different sort of, well, a person, yeah. which, is, which is crazy. Yep. Um, but it's a, it's a great area. Um, it's a great area to work in because uh, the expectations are higher that 
it may be, you may be able to give more in doing that, um, depending upon the architect you're working with. But. I had great success making presentations to the city, to the cultural affairs committee, to the client numerous times because I had all that design background and, you know, you know, the, the presentations were beautiful and very clear and, and including the whole plan of how we get this implemented, you know. Um, so there are advantages to this kind of crossover. Um, both of you having worked in kind of environmental circumstances, uh, large scale, is it more unforgiving? It, it, it takes a long time to realize because, the, I mean, what April was talking about in relationship to the planning of her mural and the sort of steps she had to go through, that you begin to deal with things that you, you don't anticipate that have to do with the, some ordinance or law that somebody created that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Like the way she said the thing would be better realized in vinyl and not being able to do it. Digital, a digital image being digitally printed on a sustainable material, bingo, you know, but no. Do you, you, know. see, do, you, see, you know, do you see that handling of logistics as an extension of the design? Do you see that as part of the design? It's your job. And designers do it better than artists because I was artists say that. just, I, I you think know, that's one major difference between um, artists and designers is designers are expected to have a certain um, technical know-how. It's a part of what they do. Well, mm -hmm. it's a, you, you, you accept limitations as part of mm -hmm. what you're dealing with, mm -hmm. and that, that's the difference. You, you are limited. You have to, and when, when a, an artist is working in a, in a public space, they are dealing with the same kind of limitations. They're really functioning as a designer. Many of them do. Uh, it, the answer to question, though, about large-scale things, I've been um, working since 1989 as a colorist and doing larger, working with architects. And um, when I was in high school, I wanted to be an architect, but my math skills with tutoring were like B. I was a B student, and so my guidance counselor misguided me and said, unless you're really good with math, you shouldn't be an architect, which is bullshit. But, um, <clears throat> you know, it's like, I think there were calculators then. I don't know. I mean, I think that they're not like, um, but as I've been working in, with architects since for 25 or more years, um, I'd be freaked out if I like did a building and I hated it, you know, like it's because it's big and it's going to last a long time and too many people are going to have to live with it or live in it, you know, so, um, but, but it's been, it's really interesting too, it's, it's still freaky like what I do, like giant, you know, million square feet buildings uh, and picking color, I work as a, with color materials palettes with architects and you know, determining what four colors out of a, a palette for for applying to steel um, is really freaky. And you know, like I I'm, I can't if I was an architect, I'd just have a heart attack every project. You know, because and you know we're all used to as designers. You know, like you pick a beautiful swatch out of the PMS book, and you know you spec it and you make a color print. And great, it looks great. But when you change scale, like even when I do I did a quarter million square foot theater, the color palette for that, and you know, the client loved the small scotches and the board I put together, then we did a bigger size, and then I just said, can we, could we paint like a couple of four by eight 
panels, you know, and I was surprised, like the different iterations, how I had to keep changing that color. Mm. You know, what looks good in a little, it's all contextual again, you know, and it's all based on the environment. If you have a little piece and it's in this black field, it looks good. But you put that, you know, at the size of 80 feet or 100 feet. No, scale changes everything. And then you have the bigger environment and then the, and you have light. <laughs> and also color, you know, you look yeah. at a swatch of color on a small area and you think it is the right the right hue and the right weight and when you blow it up in scale it's suddenly much heavier it's really it's a very freaky decision mm -hmm. to make yep it is and then you have to really deal with you know you really for me it, there's not a building i've done that i didn't spend a lot of time on the site and taking pictures of the light as it changed on the natural environment or whatever was there uh, in in preparation for what was going to be there and also grabbing natural materials from the site and making that part of, you know, like if there were twigs or if there was a grass or there was a certain seasonal flower, thinking about how that would be with the color palette. So it's, it's, it's tricky and, it, and it's, for me it's scary, but it's, again, it's like I'm like the, the moth to the flame. If like there's something scary, then you'll just find me right there. You know, just trying to, trying to figure that out because I think it, it stretches you to, and I think being an artist stretches you. It's not tidy, it's messy. <laughs> well, I would like to go back to a topic that we were touching on earlier. I feel like graphic design is one of those things that can be downplayed. It can be kind of uh, kept in the realm of, of marketing and um, commerce like we, we talked about before. But both of you, the contributions that you've made, you've impacted visual culture. You've introduced new styles to the vernacular you guys have had, have had huge impacts on all of us here today. How do you approach that type of responsibility, or do you even think about it? Don't think about it. <laughs> I, 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 the thing is that what's interesting is making stuff. Mm -hmm. And that... Loving that, what you do. You know, Just, I mean, that's, we're doing it because we love it, mm -hmm. and, and that you get involved in making it. The thing that's done is done. It's the next thing that's interesting, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and you don't set out to do that. You just want to see how far you can push the envelope. That's all. It's also like you can't see what you do. It's a different, it's a funny thing. Like you, as a designer, I think, I, I always have a sense when the problem is solved that is at hand, that needs to be solved. But then I just keep going, you know, like I, there's just something else that kicks in or it never isn't there in the first place, which is to just keep going till there's some, some other thing that, that my whole body rests, you know, that it's a total body thing where you know it's done and, and then you can move on. And um, so, yeah, I've never thought about being influential or doing anything other than what I do. You know, it's like there's, it's just, you know, there's a lot of crap that's been done by me in particular, you know, just me kind of getting no, there. I've done more crap than you. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, no, it's true. I, I've, I've, I think I've done, because I do so many physical pieces, like all those terrible record covers. <laughs> <laughs> They're really bad. But they were so 70s. That's okay. The 70s were like a, you know, a, 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 that was a toss decade, you know. So, so I, I would like to shift gears just a bit. Uh, 
So designer Stephen Doyle once remarked that if you put uh, the work of Paula Scher and April Griman side by side. I hate this. I know you do. I know you do, <laughs> but just hear me out, hear me out. Um, if you put your work side by side, that you could tell that April was, quote, <laughs> definitely from LA and Paula was definitely from New York. Paula, you've been quoted that um, your work is very New York, it's very urban, it's architectural, it's loud, it's bold. In April, you have time and time again. Mine is very quiet and you've less talk, bold. You, but you've talked about how the desert landscape has been a, a continual source of inspiration in your work. Mm -hmm. Could you guys both talk about how location has informed what you do? What's it? Location, location, location. <laughs> I, I, I think that it does. I mean, I think that you, you absorb what's around you. For me, I, I was trying to figure out why I kept using all these long, skinny, tall, wood faces, you know, and I, then I realized they're buildings, mm -hmm. you know, that you do, you, you know, you live around, you live in an area and you absorb what's there. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, I see that when I see an Ed Roche anything, it ha he had to be living in L.A., you know, mm -hmm. that you, you look at that and your work is, is I, I always thought it was very, very L.A. I mean, this color palette, the way you use space, it's a different... The way you use light. Different. I'm, I mean, I'm, everything is, I'm compressing everything. It's all smashed into one. There's no white space in my work. <laughs> one of the things that I thought about when I, when I see your work for the, the public theater um, is the fact that you knew that these posters were going to exist in this, like, chaotic urban landscape. And so they're so very graphic that you would notice, you would notice them even in the context of the city. And then, again, uh, with your work, uh, April, it, it's so about light and it's so about open space and things kind of floating. It's very well, um, I, almost um, mirage-like, some of your imagery. I mean, I, I actually did move. I, I was born in New York, by the way. Um, I'm not a valley girl. Uh, it's like, no. Um, uh, and I was very happy in New York and probably would have prospered more <laughs> had I been a designer in New York, but I... Um, needed to leave New York for a short while to leave a stressful situation and I took a project in LA and I, I didn't even tell anybody that I was going to LA because it was so embarrassing. You would never tell anybody in New York that you were going to LA because it was, you know, they're like, you know, what do you, are, you know, what happened? Are you like, <laughs> you know, did somebody die and you have to like, you know, is there some skeleton in the closet or something? Why are you going there? So get, I literally didn't, I just got in my little, BMW and I drove out and I told like two people. I don't even think I told my parents. I just, you know, said I had a new project and, you know, I'll give you a call. And I never intended to stay in Los Angeles. It was just, I needed this break and this space uh, to happen. So I just remember, um, you know, coming out, in my, even my wardrobe, it was just a lot of black <clears throat> and, uh, maybe some red and some gray and some white. And it was, it was just a kind of corporate palette. You know, even red was not a, you know, you had very subtle red. You couldn't have like, you know, a warm red, you know. But- um, Cool red. I just remember like some of, it, my project went on and on and, and I also fell in love with somebody and that was influential. But I just remember being stunned by the sunset. And also like I finally told my parents, like, by the way, not coming over this weekend because I live in LA now, but uh, but I just remember just saying, I'm watching the sunset and I'm also looking, my whole neighborhood, I have three yellow houses. There's one pink house, there's a turquoise house. 
you know, and this was just like right on my block where I lived. And I just said, it's just amazing here that there's, there's something about the light and the color here. And that was even before I discovered the desert. And then the desert just was mind boggling because it was all of that. But there was a lot more subtlety, but then there was just this vast space. And somehow, again, for me, I'm like, I need to take care of my body. It has to do with my body feeling grounded. And, and I felt like that natural environment was the first time I felt like I, like I had a home. And it was a physical thing. It wasn't an intellectual thing. It was more like, oh, wow, I feel good here. You know, I wake up in the morning and, I mean, it also had to do with, <clears throat> I was a miserable kid in New York because I hated the winters. I just, it's really cold here tonight, by the way. <laughs> I nearly died. Just that short three blocks walk to Stumptown, you know. And, uh, but no, I just. Colder here than in New York right now. It was, it's kind of, can be bitter cold here. And, and I was, un, I was a really unhappy kid in New York. So, when I just that the light and the color and the and the and the warmth palette and it also you know the again you know it, it, what's the percentage of Hispanic and the whole Mexico influence in that palette um, so it wasn't just the desert it was first just like the the even just you know LA is very residential it's not like a city it's like a country and you're kind of you know there is a little downtown it's cute but um, getting nicer. But it was, it was really that for me. It's like really the color attracting me and pulling me out to the coast. But the whole thing about, I, I was doing some pretty out there color work in Switzerland too. But yeah, having, I mean, the light, just the light alone in New York. I mean, some days in New York, it's what just- light? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, a light, it, it's, like, it's all blocked by buildings. You, I mean, this is, you, see, you see the reflection of light off the it's top a, of a It's building. a vertical experience and-, and, and the West Coast is a horizontal experience, and you have that vista. You can really, you know. That's a great observation. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so really quickly, um, I think I'll do one last question. But you know, I just I, that kind of that kind of thing about you know that's so East Coast, that's so West Coast. It just bugs me. It just also bugs me, like. How many times have you been asked, do you think there's a difference in female design or feminine design? It's, that, it's a little bit like that. I'm sorry. And Steve Doyle is brilliant and all of that. But uh, it, it, it bugs me in the same way. I actually see the difference. I mean, I, I'm fascinated. I do too, I'm but it still bugs me. I'm fascinated by it because I think it's, I think it's a, you know, just the way when I um, go to different uh, parts of the country, parts of the world and see design that can only come out of that place. It's the same thing. I mean, it isn't, there are, there are individuals and there are the ways they respond to their environment and that's, that's yeah. all part of their work. I mean, it's, 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 all, it's all one thing. It's not, a, it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's, a, it's okay. That's all. It's real. I thought it was a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. You sure? <laughs> it's okay, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> Should we move on? Yeah, let's let's do. But no, <laughs> I'm going to pose one last question. Um, I think individually that you both have done about everything that um, a graphic designer would want to do, and together, definitely you've you've covered every. I want to do of, an airline. Well, I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you what is what is that project that you haven't yet tackled that you would like to? I'd like to design a stage set. Hmm. I think that's so. Hmm. Nat I mean, that's naturally what I would think that you would do. 
George won't let me do it. I can never get my theater guys to let me do it. Who's George? George Wolf. Tush. You want me to call him? Is there call. a specific circumstance that, or huh. artist or event that you would like to design for? I would like to find the right play that was abstract enough that allowed me to do a typographic stage set. That's mm. my fantasy. Oh, yeah. I want a really big A up on the stage, you know, a little, little comfortable B that you sat on. You know, like, I mean, just think, I think, think that we need, we need alphabetic environments. Definitely. I love it. More of that, yeah. What about the floor? Right? I don't care about the floor. They hmm. cast shadows. Uh, Lighting does. And floor. they get dirty easily. Dirty. So you were saying an, an airline. I was, but I don't have any more to add to that. Well, that <laughs> just that's like, enough. That's enough. I just think there's so many missed opportunities, um, you know, from from exterior of a plane to the what they wear to. I haven't seen a good one yet. Another round of applause. This is such an amazing opportunity and experience. Paula, April, thank you so much for being part of this. Beyond This Point is created by Civilization, a design firm rooted in social change. The podcast is audio engineered by Dave West and produced by Eric Blood. Listen to more of our podcasts at beyondthispoint.design.